Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for this, the reading of your word, and I pray that you would open our hearts, take away every distraction, and Lord, that you would empower Justin to share your word. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, you may be seated, and welcome to Grace Church. We are glad that you're here with us. Um, Today, we start our new series uh, called, What is a Disciple at Grace Church? We're looking at the six core disciples, uh, six core identities of a disciple here at Grace Church. And so we hope that this next several weeks will be good for you as you consider how you can be a disciple here at Grace Church. Um, Last year, I got the privilege of going to Israel. Actually, was that this year? That was this year. This year, I got the privilege of going to Israel. There was something surreal about standing on a hill in Galilee as I looked down the overlook And saw the scenery surrounding the sea. I could not help but feel as if I was standing in the place of my own spiritual heritage. It was in this place, or at least somewhere near that place, that the risen Messiah stood before his 11 closest followers and told them, Go and make disciples of all nations. From there, the 11 would return to Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem, they would go to. Uh, the rest of Judea, to Samaria, to Ethiopia, to Rome, and to the rest of the world. We find out later that Paul's desire was to take it to Spain. And though we don't know if he actually ever made it there, one of the things that we do know is that the gospel did one day arrive in Spain, and that the rest of Western Europe received the gospel as well. Then someone took it over the sea, and it came to America, and it came to The colonies and the gospel continued to spread, and then someone felt the desire to bring it to the Midwest, and eventually it came to me. So here I was standing on the hill in Galilee, thinking about this commission that Jesus had given to his disciples, and I came to realize that in many ways, my faith, more than 2,000 years later, happened because of what was said on that hill in Galilee. I came to appreciate what God is doing as He's causing the good news of the gospel to be spread throughout the earth to every nation. His desire is for all people to hear the good news that Jesus died for sinners and rose again. Now, our church's mission statement says this, We exist to make disciples of Jesus by God's grace for His glory. You might not have known that was our mission statement. If you don't know it's our mission statement, it's my fault I haven't communicated it more uh, than I have. But that's our church's mission statement. Grace Church exists. This is the whole reason we come together. This is the reason this building's on this hill. This is the reason why we have budgets. This is the reason why we have ministries. This is the reason why we call ourselves a church. 
Grace Church exists not to gather around our favorite parties, not to have fun just with each other, though we do do that, not just to get together with people that we like. Grace Church exists to make disciples of Jesus. How? By God's grace. Why? For His glory. So we have our what, we have our how, we have our why. I felt pretty good stating that a couple of years ago, just saying that I felt like that was the mission statement. Those are marching orders as a church. If you want to know why Grace Church exists, this is why we exist. But in all honesty, it's not that original, is it? It points to something greater. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate you pointing that out for me. In fact, it was this very same mission that was given to every believer and hence every faithful church throughout the ages. The mission that was spoken by the mouth of Christ himself on that hill in Galilee. Make disciples. That being said, before we spend the next several weeks looking at the fundamental marks of being a disciple, I think it's good that we first review the foundation of our task to make disciples. Namely, we will, number one, adore afresh the one who gave the command to make disciples. Number two, we'll remind ourselves why the command to make disciples was given. And these two points taken together will form the basis of the mission. And then number three, we're going to consider anew how we can go about making disciples. And this will tell us the basics of the mission. And then finally, we'll reflect on the comfort and joy of Jesus' promise. And that will bring us to the blessing of the mission. In the end, this is what I hope you will see. Because Jesus reigns over the heavens and the earth, disciples are to make disciples of all nations while knowing that the Lord himself is present in their work. That's the main task that I have today is just to help you to see if you're a disciple, if you believe that Jesus has risen again, you have one job. You have one task. Disciples make disciples. Why? Because Jesus is risen and he reigns and because we know that he is present in this work. And that's what we will look at today. Now, Matthew 28, you might have seen it in the bulletin or in the e-grace today and you might think, oh man, another missionary text. He's going to really shame us for not being missionaries and You'd be wrong about that. I'm actually going to shame all of us for not being missionaries. So um, we all need to hear this text. It's not just a missionary text. It's not just that missions moment. Yeah, let's give a oomphah and see if we can delude a couple of teenagers to go overseas. Um, that's not the idea behind Matthew 28. The idea behind Matthew 28 is to, to reset our course, to make sure that we haven't set off on a mission drift, to make sure we haven't drifted from what we are called to do. New building, new people, new policies, new staff, new all kinds of stuff. It's a great time to remember that we still have the same old mission that was given 2,000 years ago. Now, the disciples had been with Jesus for three years. They witnessed astonishing works as he uh, healed the sick. He touched and healed lepers. That was something you didn't do back then. You touch a leopard, you're deemed unclean. And so he's reaching out and doing things that people have never seen before, never done before. 
He had the power to even raise the dead. He took a little girl by the hand and said, little girl, get up. And she got up. And they've witnessed these amazing acts of power. They know that this man is someone unlike any other. In fact, it was because of God's revelation to Peter that he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God in Caesarea Philippi. They walked with him. As people waved the palm branches in, on the way to Jerusalem, they knew that he had a claim to be king. They listened as he corrected and, and profounded, he gave profound wisdom to the Pharisees, even in the midst of their opposition. They prayed with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They watched in horror as their Lord was arrested and taken away to trial. The Sanhedrin accused him. Pilate announced the, his unwilling assent to have Jesus crucified. He was beaten, mocked, and then hung on a cross in public humiliation. The Romans knew how to do their business. Jesus, wonder worker, mighty man of God, was dead. Now, most mission sermons... <laughs> Or sermons on the Great Commission don't begin with that fact. But that's the backdrop to the Great Commission. The knowledge that Jesus had died. That his body physically lay lifeless in a tomb. In fact, the only reason that that these disciples have come to Galilee at this point is that two women have come along with the rumor that Jesus has appeared to them and told them to go meet in Galilee. So they make the trek from Jerusalem to Galilee, about 80 miles worth of walking, to go see if it's true, to go see Jesus. Verses 16 and 17 begin, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when, he saw, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, their reactions are very appropriate. The natural response to seeing the once dead but now resurrected Messiah is worship. Jesus' resurrection was the Spirit's vindication that he was who he says he was. The disciples understand that when they see this once dead, now alive Messiah standing before them, that this means that everything he said was true. He is the Son of David. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has come to redeem the world. That's the only way that they would have ever dropped the knee and dropped down in worship. I mean, these are monotheistic Jews that know if they're caught doing this and it's not true, it will cost them their life. This is blasphemy unless they absolutely know that this is true. So what causes these disciples that have been with this man that saw him die and now see him resurrected drop to the ground? The knowledge that they know that he is God. He's not a mere man. He's God in flesh. Now, I think this means several things. First, it means that we must understand how our mission depends on the resurrection. Our mission and commission of the church, our, the cornerstone of everything we do, depends and hinges on the, the truth that Jesus is the risen Son of God. That's it. That's the, 
You want to you know what everything hinges on. Why do we preach? Why do we send missionaries out? Why do we go across the street and around the world? Why do we spend money to make sure people hear the gospel, read the gospel, see the gospel, practice the gospel together? It's because of this. We believe it's true. We believe that it speaks of a risen Savior who died for our sins but now lives again and lives forevermore. That's the foundation stone of everything we do. Take out the resurrection. And you take out the mission of the church. It collapses. Take out the resurrection and everything we do as a church does not matter. We exist. And our mission exists because Jesus lives. Now second... I think once we understand that our mission depends on the resurrection, we must also acknowledge that the mission does not depend on us having everything together. Okay? Uh, This is a very simple point. Matthew is one of the eleven. He's there. He sees Jesus. He falls down and worships him. And I I think it's incredibly uh, incredible that he's just transparent about the fact, but some of us doubted. I don't think that doubt means that they rejected Jesus. That, that's not the kind of doubt that he has in mind here. It's not a disbelief in the sense of we're choosing not to believe this. This is just a normal... If you saw Jesus pop in the room right here, there'd be some of you going, what in the world do we do now? There's all kinds of doubt at this point. Like, I don't, we don't know how to respond. This man was dead, now he's alive, and he stands before us. What do we do? This is normal, natural doubt on the behalf of... Flawed, imperfect disciples. Now, just to point out a glaring fact here. Jesus doesn't wait for their faith to catch up before he gives them the mission. Jesus doesn't give the great commission to a bunch of people who had perfect faith and had it all together. Who had no doubts. Jesus gave the great commission. The mission to reach the entire world... To men who had doubts. That gives me great encouragement. I doubt every Monday, every other Tuesday, and sometimes third Thursdays. It's easy for us as believers to doubt. We don't have perfect faith. We're flawed people. We're people who, who, have, who see in part and sometimes we see wrongly. And, and so we are incomplete. But incomplete as we are, Jesus' atoning work is finished. The tomb is empty and he lives. Imperfect disciples do not keep Jesus from giving and securing his great commission. He's not waiting for us to build the perfect church. Let's have the perfect policies. Let's have all the perfect things in place. Wait till you have a perfect pastor. Wait till you have perfect people. And then you may go out and do the Great Commission. That's not what Jesus waits for. He uses imperfect people like you and me. Why? Because it expresses to everyone. It is a display that God doesn't depend on people. People depend on God. The work doesn't depend on my faith. And praise God, it doesn't. The work depends on the resurrected Lord. I don't have to have my ducks in a row. What a great motivation to continue to do mission, right? As a pastor, I've heard lots of people used to understand I'm not ready for that. I know you keep telling me to invite my neighbor over. 
I don't even know what to talk about. I've never done that before. I don't feel like I have the answers. My friends, Jesus doesn't call disciples to have ducks in a row. Jesus calls disciples to disciple. As you are right now, go and do it. Imperfect, flawed as you may be, you use whatever grace the Lord has given you. And you go about knowing that the world will be reached not because you prepared well, not because you went to seminary, not because you went to classes, not because you suddenly became articulate. The world will be reached for Jesus because Jesus is Jesus. That's it. The world will be reached. Disciples will be made of all nations. And in the end, we look at it. And as we discussed this morning, God using four-foot-tall, ten-inch women to reach China. Not because they're perfect. But because in their imperfection and their weakness, He has proven to be sufficient and strong. Now, in addition to the resurrection, our mission is dependent on the truth that Jesus reigns over all. Verse 18 says this, And Jesus came and said to them, Now, I don't know how far Jesus is. I don't know when they recognize him. Um, all I know is that they're worshiping and Jesus is coming closer. And he begins to say to them as he comes, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, that is all-encompassing universal authority. All authority in heaven and earth. The, the words heaven and earth should echo another text for you. Genesis 1.1 says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that phrase means everything from the heavens to the earth and everything in between. It all belongs to God because he created it. Jesus is taking that same phrase and saying, guess what? The same God who created everything is now standing before you and it's all mine. All authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Cowper is absolutely correct when he says, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of mankind over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. Jesus' statement of complete dominion reminds us of the promises of the Davidic king who would come and have a perfect, eternal, all-encompassing dominion that would bring restoration to fallen humanity. Daniel 7.14 is one example. If you, if you think this is brand new, go back into the Old Testament, find out, no, this is God's plan all along. He has been planning that one man, one king, his servant, son of David, son of God, Messiah, would come and reign over all. Daniel 7.14 says this, And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Psalm 2.8, God announces to the anointed one, which in Hebrew is Mashiach, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession, your personal possession. That means, ask of me, and China will be yours. Ask of me, and Mexico will be yours. Ask of me, and Justin Jackson's front yard will be yours. 
his personal possession. Isaiah 9-7 is added to the list. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it with justice and with righteousness from this time forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The increase of his government will know no end. That means it will grow and grow and grow and grow until there is nothing left. All encompassing authority marks the fulfillment of God's creational and redemptive plan. That this man stands here and claims kingship over all the earth. Now, it's, it's interesting. When Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he was stating his authority as a present fact. A present tense fact. Not, it, he, didn't, he doesn't say, I, it will be mine one day. He's saying, it is mine. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is not waiting to be made king. He's not waiting to be crowned. He reigns now, and the nations, every single one of them, belong to him already. We're not waiting for the day for that to be true. It is true right now. And it's that truth, the truth of his reign that exists right now that propels us to do disciple making. It's right after he proclaims his absolute authority that he says, therefore, meaning that because this is true, therefore, go. The word therefore is inferential, meaning that Jesus' command to go and make disciples is rooted and caused by the absolute fact that he is king, that he reigns. In other words, do you want to you want to you want to express in one clear way? If you want to illustrate in one clear way that you believe Jesus is King over all, therefore go. That's what he's saying. Make disciples. This means when we go, whether you go across the street, knock on your neighbor's house, or whether you fly across the sea to another nation, you go not because you're going to go make Jesus King in that area. You go because Jesus is king in that area, and you want to tell them that he is king already. You see how that's a reversal in some of, the minds, some of our minds about mission? We don't make Jesus king. He is not crowned by our hands, or by our work, or by our evangelism. He's crowned by the hand of God. Our work is an effect that is caused by his being crowned king by God himself. What we do does nothing to make him Lord over all. What we do is, is a consequence of him being Lord of all. The greatest motivation that I have found, and I've been a missionary, I've, I've lived in foreign countries, I've, I still, to this day, try to go on one mission trip a year, at least just to keep my mind rooted in the fact that God is not just trying to reach Ovilla, but he's trying to reach the world. The greatest motivation I have found for engaging in missions to both our neighbors and to the nations is not a guilt trip. That's not how people are motivated to missions. It's not a desire for adventure. Oh, wait wait to see where God takes you. And nor is it a call to do something important. 
The greatest motivation for mission is a deep-seated conviction that Jesus reigns now. That's the greatest motivation. To realize that anywhere you go, wherever your foot steps, anywhere on this planet, it belongs to him, your king, your personal savior, whose spirit lives inside of you. Now, as an analogy, in ancient Roman culture, whenever a new Caesar ascended the throne, emissaries were sent out to proclaim the Caesar's lordship to the nations under Rome's rule. So you just, Caesar would ascend and out would go the emissaries. Now, the emissaries were not making Caesar king over these nations. They're simply telling them, hey, there is a king over you. Acknowledge it, live live by it, submit to it. They weren't requesting, they were simply telling They're not saying, hey, by the way, we're asking you to vote our new Caesar in. No, they're simply telling the fact. Caesar's king. Just heads up. Don't disobey him. In a far more important way, Christ is a far greater emperor. He's more eternal. His throne's everlasting. His dominion knows no end. And we as disciples go out not to request that people make him king... We go out to tell people he is king. You see, the bowing of the nations, the bowing of every knee, and the confessing of every tongue happens whether people are willing or unwilling to do it. That reality will happen. We're simply asking them to do it willingly now. Evangelism, in essence, is not trying to force people to make a decision. It's not trying to... Force people to come along, get on the boat. This is a great way to go. Evangelism is a sovereign decree that we truly believe that Jesus is king. We have a wholehearted, deep-seated conviction that Jesus really does reign over Ovilla, Texas. That he owns even the deepest, darkest secrets of our neighbor's backyard. Evangelism is helping people understand that the knees will bow, the tongues will confess, that Jesus reigns on high now, already belongs to him now. Now, the two-part basis of our mission, which, as I've said, has been resurrection and reign. That's the, if you want to know what our mission depends on, it's those two things, that Jesus has risen and that he reigns. This two-part mission can just be summarized in this fact. The sacrificial Savior died for sin. He was buried, he rose again, and he sits on the throne. What do we call that? The gospel. Our mission hinges on the gospel. Our mission rests on, sits upon, relies on the gospel Take out the gospel. You take out our mission. Take out our mission. We stop existing as a church. He's the Lord who lives, the resurrected ruler. How committed we are to to our mission indicates how committed we are to his resurrection and his reign. The more we live in our own little bubble, the more we implicitly deny the fact that Jesus' dominion encompasses the whole earth. The more I seclude myself 
and my white picket fence and my 1,800 square foot home, the more I'm expressing the fact that I believe Jesus only owns that. The more I go, the more I am saying, this is his and this is his and that is his. You realize the more secluded you are, the more that mirrors the fact that you don't actually think that Jesus reigns over all. It's a hard truth to tell. I say it with the greatest love. I was born in Stigler, Oklahoma. I didn't even know there was a rest of the world. I knew that you had the three by three mile, square mile, whatever thing of little town. I knew that I had my 20 minute bus ride and then eventually a drive when I finally got my license uh, from my house to school. I knew that John's land was there, and then when you hit the rock and the line of pine trees, that was Fred's land, and, you know, so I just drive in 20 minutes. That was my little world. From there, moved to Edmond, realized, oh, there's another part of Oklahoma I didn't even know about. Moved from Oklahoma to China, and that's where it blasted my mind. Thousand-year-old society, thousands and thousands of year-old society, Even that belongs to him. Just blows my mind. I can't sit still now. Because I want to go travel and see my father's kingdom. Yeah, sign me up for DR. Take me to Malawi. Take me across the street. Because I guarantee it, everywhere you take me, I guarantee it belongs to my Lord. It's his kingdom. Our country. Now, having been reminded afresh of the basis of our mission, we turn now to consider the basic task of our mission. So we, we've dealt with the kind of the basis, the foundation, the cornerstone. Now we're going to look at what the mission actually is. Jesus approached his disciples and he laid out the mission in verses 19 through 20. Here's what he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, in this, we see one primary object, and it's accomplished by two tasks. The main objective is stated this way, go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, it's important to see that the word go is not a standalone imperative. Typically, if I were to ask you to summarize the Great Commission, you'd say, go, baptize, and teach. Go is not a standalone imperative. Go is connected. It's it's imperative force comes from the primary imperative, which is to make disciples. Go actually falls into the background. The complete imperative is go and make disciples. That's it. And we're arguing sometimes about whether go means as you go so that I can stay in my own little town. Or if it means actually go, so I can fly overseas. The early disciples would have never had that in mind. Because the imperative is make disciples. Not just go. Who cares where you go? (laughs) Just go and make disciples. That's what the argument is. That's the imperative of it. It doesn't matter if it's across the street. It doesn't matter if it's to your neighbor's front door. And it doesn't matter if it's to the deep, dark heart of the Congo. Go. And make disciples. That's the imperative. 
That's the standalone command of Jesus. That's the all-inclusive mission that he gives. That means right now, if you live and breathe and can walk, you are the object and subject of this mission. You are the one to whom it is given to. Not just missionaries. Not just pastors. It belongs to you. It is your responsibility as the church. The church's true mission. We together will be led across the street and over the seas. Will be led to neighbors and to nations. Now I don't think everybody's a formal missionary in that sense. But I do think everybody should be on mission. I do think the commission is for whoever is sitting and breathing. And can call themselves a disciple of Christ. My friends, don't pit neighbors and nations together. You may not be called to go to the nations. You are called to go to neighbors. You may have a heart for nations, but share it with every neighbor you have until you get to the nations. God has called us to make disciples, and to pit one against the other, whether it's nations or neighbors, is to set up a false dichotomy that doesn't exist. Still more, The scope of the church's mission mirrors the all-encompassing authority of Christ. He has authority over all the earth, so the church is, guess what? To make disciples where? All the earth. All nations. You realize Jesus didn't come just to save one people group. He didn't come just to save Caucasians. Jesus came to save all nations. He has a kingdom using the word of God itself that is filled with Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. In the words of my grandfather, the heaven is filled with people who don't speak regular. Filled with all kinds of strange languages. Filled with every shade of flesh. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. He desires that repentance for the forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's Luke 24. He is the salvation that has been prepared, not just for Ovilla, but in the words of Ananias, in the presence of all people. To have a view of mission that focuses on only one ethnic group, Only one cultural group, only one language group, only one geopolitical group falls short of the mission that Jesus has given in his own words. God's kingdom is one that is filled with a Moabite, a Canaanite, Jews, Rome, Romans, Ethiopians, Egyptians, Ugandans, Malawians, Congolese, Spaniards, Brazilians, Mexicans, Dominions, Shanshirin, Yungchungwin. It's filled with all kinds of people. It's a kingdom filled with blacks, Asians, Pacific Islanders, Latinos, Caucasians, and everyone mixed in between. Jesus' praises are sung by the Shanxi dialects of north central China. There's something beautiful about hearing the words of in the middle of a Sunday morning. He's sung 
to by the Quechuan languages of the Peruvian mountains that you probably don't even know a word of Quechua. You better get used to it because it's going to be in all eternity. Swahili, Arabic. Even that weird language that's, that's spoken in the Appalachian Mountains that I can never remember what it's called. He's come to save every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. His reign encompasses all nations. And so if we don't have a mission that has a view for all nations, if our church's mission does not have in its purview blacks, Asians, Arabians, Pakistanis, Chinese, Russians. If our mission is too small to include them, we don't have the mission of Christ. We don't have the mission of Christ. The idea would be that we would have a mission that would be just as all-encompassing as Jesus's. Now, practically speaking, how do we go and make disciples of all nations? Jesus gives two particular particular participles that define what it means to disciple. First, he says, baptizing them, the nations, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There have been some people in other countries that have argued this is why our world is made of 80% water, because God knew it took a whole lot of water to baptize the nations. I don't know if that's true, but... It's, it's nice nonetheless to think about. Now, baptism in Matthew's gospel is often a symbol of repentance. It's turning away from sin and turning toward God. It represents purification in a heart that wants to be aligned with the will and kingship of God. It is an awkward symbol to do in our day and age that we dunk people in water. But the symbol of it is amazing. It's profound. When we baptized our friends in East Asia... We told them. We often told them that going under the water symbolized death to the self, self, and coming up out of the water represented new life with God as their Lord. We went on to explain to them that baptism is basically a public dethronement. Have you ever thought about that? Every time you see someone willing to go about the symbol of baptism, one of the things they're representing is, I'm no longer king, I am raised to live under the reign of a new sovereign. That's baptism. I've heard arguments about, I don't like to get up in front of people, I don't, I don't, like, to, I don't like to be the center of attention, I don't like spotlight. My friends, this is one thing you really don't have an option to do. It's a command, a commission. It's something that God has given to us. You want to know why? Because God wants you in your testimony to share the truth. You are not king. He is. So if you've not been baptized, you might think it strange. You might even think it weird that a pastor's asking you to, to think about it, to do it. But my friends, what a better way to symbolize to everyone that you have dethroned yourself from lordship, that you yourself recognize that you are not the king of your own life, but that Jesus is. Now, when we describe baptism in that way, that's a public dethronement in the setting up of, like, allowing God to take the throne of the life, even though he's already got the throne, 
it makes sense why sovereign states like China tend to have a problem with the way that we preach, right? makes sense why places that claim sovereignty and absolute lordship would have a problem with that. Because baptism is public allegiance to a king and to one king, saying that we will obey fully only one man. We might obey the nations and the governments, but we will only obey insofar as they submit to the true king, our true sovereign. That's what baptism does in foreign countries. It's a public declaration that they will now submit to one and only true king. Now they come into this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, meaning that they are recognizing God is king, God the Father is king, Jesus is king, the Holy Spirit is king. They are one and the same. They are the three in one, the Trinity. They come in the name of the triune God and The triune God himself reigns over my rights, over my will, over my life, over my career, over my possessions. Now, as wonderful as a work as baptizing is, there's more to it than just going around dunking people, okay? Along with baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus adds that we are to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, this particular aspect of the commission reminds us that we are not called to make converts. That sounds wrong when I say it, doesn't it? We're not called to make converts. We are called to make disciples. Converts is when you fly over, do you want to believe, do you want to believe, do you want to believe, and then you leave them. The Great Commission is more than just making converts, focusing on a one-time decision. Making disciples focuses on the lifetime of growth. It's not just getting people to pledge allegiance to the king. It's actually teaching people how to live in the kingdom of Christ. Both works are important. My friends, again, I can say this because I've been in this world of being a missionary. And I've seen the damage of flying through a country reaching as many people as we can and not going back to teach them. It has caused heresies that we had to be embattled against. It almost destroyed the churches we planted. My friends, the goal isn't just to get people in the water and to profess faith. The goal is to get them to profess kingship and then to leave out, to to live out that kingship of Christ in daily life, day after day, Baptism's a one-time, one-time symbol of them dethroning themselves and giving up the right to be king. But the rest of life must be lived, living out that truth. We don't just reach them. We reach them with the gospel, and then we teach them. We apply it. We show them how the gospel works in fatherhood, in motherhood, in being a son, and being a machinist, and being a CEO. We work the roots of the gospel deep. Deep. Now, just to be fair, some of the, some of the stress that this gives of mission agencies is so few people are doing this. So if so few people are doing this work, they don't necessarily always have time to go deep. There's more people to share with. That's a huge problem in our church, in, our, in the church of today. 
so few people making disciples. And there's so few of those that are actually disciple makers. My friends, I, I love you dearly, and I love the American church. I will say this, the American church is not as healthy as it thinks it is. We have the best theological programs. We have the best well-trained pastors. We have more Bible translations than anybody in history has ever had. And we are the less committed to discipleship. It's not stated as a slap in your face. It's stated as truth. That you as a disciple are called to make disciples. This is the modus operandi of the church. Unless you are making disciples. Which guess what? Making disciples doesn't mean just teaching someone how to do little things in the church. Okay? It's not about teaching someone how to paint a wall or, or how to read a book or anything like that. Making disciples means working and massaging the gospel deep into their heart. How many of us can actually say we have people that we meet with, that we speak with, that we eat with, that we work with, and we are hammering away the gospel deeper and deeper and deeper every week. That is the real mission of the church. To see Jason Berg show up at the front door. And to see a Mike Talley approach him and you're meeting with me every week now. And we're going to read the scriptures together. And week after week, hammer falls, the gospel goes deeper. Hammer falls, the gospel goes deeper. Week after week after week until Jason is ready to be a godly husband who will love his wife like Christ loves the church. And we continue deeper deeper and deeper until Jason is making disciples himself. I can say Jason because I can pick on him. So That's the work of discipleship. Sandra Smith looking for young ladies. Who, who can I have coffee with this week? It's you finding new faces. Who do you see in this room that you don't know and you don't know the spiritual status? Maybe they need someone to teach them the gospel. Maybe they need someone to show them how to be a gospel Christ-centered husband or wife. That's the work of the church. We have flawed budgets. We have flawed policies. Guess what? You have a flawed pastor. But we have one perfect gospel, and we can have good budgets, we could have good buildings, we could have good policies, but unless we do discipleship well, we are not doing our mission well. I feel burdened by that as a pastor. My time will not be trying to make American churches more comfortable but that my goal will to see every person who calls themselves a disciple to know and love Jesus more and from the overflow of that knowledge and love of Christ to go and make Christ known. Massive burden for that. 
Disciples making disciples is the core of every healthy church. The more disciples in our church that make disciples, the healthier our church is. The fewer disciples making disciples, the more unhealthier and sick and dying our church is. Notice that doesn't matter how many people come and sit in this room. That's not the metric for health. Notice it's not how swollen our budget is. That's not the metric for health. The metric for health is how many of us that call ourselves disciples, disciple. Now, here's the good news. Remember, Jesus used Peter. Peter sees the transfigured Jesus on the mountain, and Peter is like, oh, I know what to do. Let's make a tent. There's hardly anyone that could be hardly more incompetent than Peter in the, the way that we read his story. Peter denied Jesus after everything that he had seen. And guess what? God used Peter. God used a Pharisee named Paul who would have rather slit your throat than to save you. You may think, I, am not, I don't have anything. That's great. Bring your loaves of bread, bring your fish, and let Jesus do the multiplying. What little you have, trust him. Your doubting heart, trust him. God uses imperfect people wherever they are to do the work that he has given them to do. Now, that leads us to the blessing. If it was up to these 11 men all by themselves to do this work all by themselves, they have no hope. I mean, they're up against the Sanhedrin that doesn't want them to preach in Jesus' name. They're up against problems in the church. They're up up against Rome itself. These men have no hope. They stand under the wrath of Rome. They stand in the midst of riots of Artemis and Ephesus. They stand in the midst of incredible opposition. It would be an incredibly poor mission strategy to rely the health and future of the church on these doubting 11 men. Fortunately, that was never Jesus' mission strategy. Jesus' mission strategy wasn't sending out and leaving them to do the work. Jesus' mission strategy was to send them out and to go with them. Here's what he says. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Oftentimes I forget in the daily grind of ministry, um, when I'm meeting with someone, I've had several coffee moments uh, this week, I have, a, I have a dear friend that I'm studying scripture with, love him dearly, grab coffee with him. It's just become mundane just to read scripture and talk about God. And as I read these words, I, I was reminded powerfully that in the middle of me sitting in my armchair, sipping on a cup of coffee with my Bible open, helping this young man learn more and more about Jesus, guess who I've forgotten is there? Jesus. He's promised it. When you cross the street to knock on your neighbor's house, you do not cross the street alone. When you reach over the fence to shake your neighbor's hand and invite them over for dinner so that you can have a chance to tell them your story, you do not give that invitation alone. Jesus was with my wife and I in the heart of East Asia. In hospital rooms, on mountaintops, in caves with believers, in rivers where we're doing baptizing. You cannot go 
one place alone. The blessing of the mission is you do not go by yourself. I love that truth to me. So it's a joyful, awe-inspiring truth. Man, you want to get closer to Jesus, go walk in with him. Talk to people with him. Go on mission with him. Get outside of your little bubble and go. That's where Jesus is. That's where he's promised to be. You want to be closer. You want to be with him. Go and make disciples. Now, application, what what should you do? Well, I think first and foremost, my hope would be that you're considering who in this room you're going to approach right after this. Older ladies, there are younger ladies that are begging for your attention. Older men, there are younger men that are just begging for you to take them out, teach them some things, answer their questions. I've had young men ask me how to ask a girl out and that lead to a gospel conversation. I have no idea how. DQ ice cream can make you say anything. My hope is that you think, really, truly think, if you're a part of this church, how are you being a disciple that makes disciples? You may not know what you're going to talk about. You don't have to figure that out right now. It does take a willing heart. Mothers in the room, my friends, you have live-in disciples. Dads in the room, You have living disciples. Make disciples. They live with you. They can't run from it. It's great. You can tell them when to sit down. You can tell them when to put their phone down. If you haven't done it, try it. It's great. I've sat at dinner tables and had amazing conversations with my six-year-old boy about how a man could die and raise again. Make disciples. Most of you have grandkids, nephews, nieces, friends, neighbors. Fairly confident. I haven't met any of you that live out in the sticks with no neighbors at all. Make disciples. Now, having been reminded of our mission to make disciples, the next several weeks we're going to be reminded of what it means to be disciples. We know our mission is to make, but we mustn't forget that we're also called to be So if we're called to make disciples, and we know that the Lord's pattern that he has given is that disciples make disciples, the next question would be, okay, well then how can we be better disciples who therefore go and make disciples? So I think over the next four weeks, we're going to spend time looking at six specific core identities. Number one, we're going to be looking at a disciple as a student. Next, as a servant. Third, as a giver as a missionary, as a worshiper, and as a family member. Now, I don't think this is all it takes to be a disciple, but I do think these are the things that we see in Scripture that disciples do. These are the marks, the characteristics, the identities of what disciples are like. So I hope in this time that we will evaluate. Okay, we know what we're supposed to do. Now, how do we evaluate where we're at? How are we being? We know what we should be doing. How are we being disciples? 
The common denominator in all those is going to be the gospel, obviously. So you may get sick of hearing it after six weeks. Students of Christ because of the gospel. Servants of Christ because of the gospel. You're going to hear that drumbeat over and over and over again. My friends, what a beautiful mission that we have. And that he uses a lot like us to reach his, his, his world. Sharing the gospel about an eternal kingdom is amazing. May we reflect and live out the gospel that Jesus has saved us with. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth that you have given us. God, we pray that you'll help us to be disciples and that we will thereby make disciples. God, I do ask, Lord, that you will be with us as we continue to be a church. God, convict us. God, there's lots of hard truths that most of us, like me, don't want to hear. God, I do pray that you'll begin here with me to break my heart for the hard truths, Father, for me to hear your love and patience and your kindness and mercy, while at the same time, Father, motivating me to obey you even more and to love you even more, and not just to settle and sit, but to go and make disciples like you've called us to do. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.